bringing relevant and engaging insights to human resource and talent development professionals. This is Talent Champions with Diana Thomas, sponsored by Franklin Covey. Here is your host, Diana Thomas. Welcome to another episode of Talent Champions. I'm Diana Thomas, and I'm so excited and honored to serve as your host. We have another wonderful episode for you today with my guest and friend, Teresa Roach. Teresa is the CHRO, so that's the Chief Human Resource Officer of Fort Collins in Colorado, which is widely recognized as one of the best places to live in the U.S., She previously held high-level HR and learning roles at tech companies, including HP and Agilent. Welcome, Teresa. I'm so glad to have you. Diana, thank you so much. And I just want to say to start out, you mentioned the word you feel honored that I'm here. I feel that and some and very humbled. I'm just delighted to be here with you and those that may listen to this podcast. Thank you. Oh, thank you. And I was so excited about having you as a guest because you were one of the friendliest and most giving individuals. I still remember our first time meeting at a network meeting. We have mutual friends and colleagues. And I felt from the moment I met you that you were just such a nice person and a friend and, you know, somebody that if I ever needed something, I could just pick up the phone and call. And so I'm so excited that you've made the time because I know how busy you are to share some of your experience and expertise with our audience. Well, thank you. I feel the same. So before we get into our topic, which is around practicing human resources in the public sector, a new area for us to explore on our podcast, I'd love for you to share a little bit about your background and what brought you to the place that you're in today. Diana, I have thought a lot about this. And just given the values and principles in which I grew up in, um, the whole thought about remaining curious, contribution, and community were just three aspects that I felt I was surrounded in by my parents and my older siblings. And I always had this desire to contribute directly to a community, but I, I felt that there was something about public service And I'm just delighted that at a time in my life, this opportunity arose and I was ready. Why I felt even more so about the city of Fort Collins is I don't know if you've ever heard about a program called Leadership and it's whatever city you're in. I was in the uh, inaugural program in Palo Alto, California in 1988. And I was in the one in Fort Collins. They're usually run by your Chamber of Commerce. So I was in leadership for Collins when I was a global executive at Agilent Technologies. And that program is a year-long program where every month you are with others on topics at various settings to understand your community, all with the intention that you would learn ways that you could serve. So the city of Fort Collins, when they had the opportunity, I applied. And to be honest with you, and this is a great story I love to tell, They didn't uh, interview me at first because I had no government experience. And then through a process that they went through using a search firm, they decided that they might experiment and see what it was like to meet those of us from the private sector. And it worked out. And so I've been at the city since August of 2016. Oh, that is a great story. They took a chance on you and boy, did it pay off for them. (laughs) Well, let's have them get on this podcast. (laughs) 
confirm that or not. Yeah. Okay. Before we get into the nitty gritty of what you do, you have to let us know. So is where you live one of the best places to live? And why would you say that if you say yes? Wow. Thank you for asking that question. I do not always have the words to explain a deep connection to a state and a city that I was not born in the city or actually had friends in the city um, as compared to other places that I've lived. So I'm going to start big picture and just tell you that one of the things that my husband, our child at that time, and I wanted to look at is what state, what community after we had gone back to school and uh, Kai, our child, was five and a half, we said Colorado is a remarkable state. So this state has a, an air about it that I just really like to breathe, where people choose to focus on what matters and to be in a civil discourse. And Colorado is strong economically, wonderful education. What's here in our natural settings is outstanding. There's great cultural aspects of Colorado. So the state was one we said we would like to move to. And then Fort Collins specifically is a microcosm of this big old macrocosm. We are blessed to have Colorado State University, which is an amazing land-grant institution, and there's something about living in a city where you have the university. So what I feel is it's a highly engaged and conscious community and um, as you alluded to, we have won so many awards. Oh, well, your passion definitely comes through. And I always hear, you know, about it being a wonderful place to live. So it's great to have some additional insight. Could I just say one thing that I want to make sure, because sometimes it can sound so like Nirvana, which I do feel. I also want to recognize, and this sounds like a harsh word, but we have a shadow side. Um, and what I do love, back to the consciousness and engagement, is um, we don't have the same diversity that I certainly experienced when I lived in the Bay Area. But here's why I feel okay, and I put that in quotes. We are willing to lean into working and being with others in community that may not feel that Fort Collins is as wonderful for them. So I don't want to make it sound like, um, you know, Disneyland. But I, I just want to say there's light, which is brilliant, and yet we're also just present and aware of the things that we still need to work on. So thanks for letting me say that. Oh, absolutely. So let's sure. get to the work side of, of what you do. So as the CHRO of the city of Fort Collins, what areas of municipal government fall under your responsibility? I am in the area that you call human resources, and yet that word can mean so much. So I want you to know that when I think about what are we working towards, my team and I work on attracting, retaining, rewarding, engaging, and developing the diverse and competitive talent that we need to serve the community. So it's all the things that you normally think about, talent acquisition, talent development, organizational development, employee engagement, total compensation, uh, employee relations, compliance, records. I have all of that for the city of Fort Collins employees. And then we have what's called IGAs or intergovernmental agreements. So we provide support to the Poudre Fire Authority, uh, a downtown 
uh, business association, to the public library. So we have other relationships that my team and I support. And I want to do a specific shout out to something that I've never had the honor of leading as I get to at the city. And that is that we also foster a deep culture of well-being in our city organization. So I have this amazing wellness team that was there long before I got there. And the amount of strategy and programming and support we give so that there's well-being for our employees. The other thing I want to do a shout out for, which is completely unique to me, is that the volunteer service program, which is a very compelling part of the city, that reports into my team. And we have 10,000 unique people that live in the city and, and potentially elsewhere that volunteer, whether it's an hour or some for years, to help provide services to the community. So to have that, where I've always been a volunteer, but to look at how do you attract and retain and nurture and engage this amazing volunteer uh, group that we have, and the city's had this for years, has been um, just inspiring to me. So I, I am delighted that I have the opportunity to be a part of that. How big is your whole organization that you're in charge of finding people that, you know, fill these positions and support? How large is the group that your group supports? So, Diana, what we typically say is that we have approximately 2,500 employees. I want to put a pinpoint on something here, and that is that approximately 1,400 are what you would consider regular full or part-time employees with some employees that we call contractual. And then the remaining um, number are are hourly. And those are people that might be seasonal. So we talk about a 2,500, but there is some uniqueness in the workforce that my team and I serve. And then, of course, in the IGAs, the intergovernmental agreements, you know, if I look at the total of that, that might be another 400, you know, that we support. Uh, in the work that we do. Wow. And I know as I've been interviewing and just talking with a variety of human resource leaders, you know, over the last year, definitely one of the challenges that comes up is just the tighter labor market. Some people say it's not been this tight in 30 years, 50 years, whatever. Um, Are you experiencing that same thing? Is it harder now, have you seen, because of the tighter labor market? So I do think there are challenges in many different ways. We are actually in a region that is growing immensely. So while you may not talk about competition in the same way when you are a municipality in the public sector, there are growing cities around us and we're growing. It is tough for people that don't have full-time employment. And so sometimes we experience more challenges in some of our hourly positions, seasonal positions. Fort Collins has gotten more expensive with housing. And when you look at what I call the triple helix of healthcare, childcare, and housing, you know, I think many of us are, are caught in that helix that we're trying to work our way through. Fortunately, we as a city talk about that we don't create employment except for our own organization, but we create conditions to make the economy strong and to uh, 
try to increase the talent. And so there's a major effort that the city is a key partner on to look at how to attract and retain talent to this northern region and Fort Collins. So I know one of the things that's really important for top learning HR talent leaders is to really make sure your efforts are aligned with the top leaders. And as I've talked to you several times, it really does feel like you are part of the city. So how do you connect your role with leading HR with the city's strategic plan? I know it doesn't happen by accident. The city of Fort Collins gets a lot of recognition and many people coming to talk to us about our secret sauce. And that's what they asked us, like, how do you do this? Well, before I got there, the leaders that I am honored and blessed to work with really recognize that a great culture and a great strategy equals great results. And in a photo finish, as our city manager says, culture always wins. So the city has been really clear about what vision, mission, and values, what are the essence of the critical aspects that make for an effective culture. The city does an extensive, deep, and broad strategic planning. And I'm starting here because I want you to understand the context in which I then look at what does my team focus on and how do I show up in my role From there, we develop master plans, and then we get to, in fact, I have a meeting later on this morning on our strategic plan for the city. So we do, if you look at this as concentric circles, we go way out and then go back in. So you look in the context of where the demographics are changing, what's happening with the economy, what's new innovation on uh, driverless cars and mobility issues. And so I am guided first by the city plan that the council adopts, bringing it home to our city plan. And then I develop what is called a department uh, strategy plan. And Diana, the, the alignment and the fact that you could start out with our city plan and then point to a number in the strategic plan and then see the objectives that are those that uh, HR has, you see an amazing alignment. So my, my point that I want to share is I first get into where is the community going? What does the council express as most important to focus on? And then how do we begin to decide in a shorter time frame what can we do? I feel that it is probably one of the strongest focused alignments that I had even in all the years where I worked for wonderful companies in the private sector. And of course, there's a lot around leadership capability and what leadership is required. How do we ensure a high performance workforce and every year that can change what we need to focus on? That's wonderful. It's such an integrative, collaborative process, it sounds like. So no wonder when somebody talks to you, you sound like you are a representative for the city because of that integration and co-supporting, it sounds like. Yeah, it gives me a deep sense of connection and contentment because what drives me is to make sure that I am serving the organization that I'm affiliated with. And in this case, it's the community. And to bring all that home, to look at my yearly plans for my team and I, pretty amazing. Yeah, sounds like it. 
So now you've been in the public sector since 2016. So what are some yeah. of the major differences to the HR practices in public versus private sector? Do some things stand out? Here's some of my key insights. What's the same and different, for example, the question you ask is, who do we serve? Who are our customers? So at Agilent, you know, we would talk with great specificity about the global markets and who would purchase our, our products and solutions. Here, our customers are all members of the community in the city of Fort Collins. That's a really different mm-hmm. set of customers, but the orientation to listen to their needs, just like you do in the private sector, similar in terms of caring about that. I was kind of concerned when I joined because I have loved being a global executive and having colleagues from around the world and the richness you get when you have dialogue from people that have a whole different experience in the world. And I thought, am I gonna miss that? And I certainly missed my friends and colleagues but I have traded off global complexity for service complexity. The next that I would point to is I loved um, thinking about board of directors in the private sector. And as you know, you recruit and find the board members that make up the diversity that you're looking for. Here, our board of directors is the city council, elected officials. The next is, and this is one that took me a while, and I'm still not there yet. We have a city charter. So there's ordinances and resolutions. So there's some things I might um, share later, depending on what you and I talk about. For how I get some work done on talent, I go through a resolution that gets voted on by council. So the orientation of the process is really different. The next thing I just want to say is democracy is messy. It's fascinating to me because I so believe in democracy. And it is really interesting to have a relationship to democracy. But now that I'm in it and we live it and it is a fundamental expectation, it is really messy. And that's my word (laughs) because you have so many different people And you need to listen deeply and find the way through. And, you know, I think about when I was in the private sector, sure, there was participation, but you had people declaring this is where we're going and now help us figure out how to get there. It's just a a different orientation. Nothing is black and white. Very few problems are what we're responding to. There's dilemmas where a polarity, for example, with my team is continuity and transformation and you don't go directly to one end of that polarity to the other they both have value but I just uh, walked into the city was going to city council was in several meetings and I thought wow these are all adaptive situations they're dilemmas and how do you navigate that polarity it feels different than what I felt when I was in the private sector In some ways, it's the same kind of world as far as the alignment and what you're doing. But then in some ways, because of it being this service complexity and and what you're responsible for, I can understand why, you know, they were looking for somebody that understood government. And so I think of everything that I know that you've done in the past 
And it's kind of like prepared you for this, not only starting from your background and your values and principles, but just the experiences that you had in other companies. So I think you're a great example for our audience in um, you know, how you can make a transition and what's involved in it too, which, you know, it's going to take a minute. So maybe you could give us a little more insight is how did you make that transition from going from private to public? And what would you say were the major success factors that you looked at and tracked and celebrated? Well, I always think of myself first as a business executive, and then I happen to represent a function and a body of knowledge. So the fact that I naturally take time to understand context organizationally, try to understand what the end outcome is that we're trying to achieve, that's why going to city council, being at all the kinds of business meetings, that's just a space I love. Because I don't know how to do the next body of work unless I know that. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, Diane, I joined the city when I was 60. So I've had remarkable chapters in my life. And I think one of my saving graces is I dance in the polarity of humility and confidence. Humility to me and the Buddhist way of defining it is believing that others have something to offer. And I believe that. And I have confidence from all those years of experience and lots of painful moments <laughs> of confidence that maybe I have something to offer. And Diane, I just want to share, shortly after I joined, I really felt, oh my God, I, I, this is like so much. I just had emerging things and unrelenting demands. And, and these are the things that I would say have served me well when I'm conscious and present is I listen deeply I keep the whole system in mind. So here I am in the public sector and things around talent and total compensation. Those matter here too, but I didn't know if anything I'd ever experienced or was learning would be relevant. So I look for the pull and then I always have something in my back pocket to push. The last two I would say is I welcome emergence. When you're in a democracy and it's messy and you want to get something done in an hour through a conversation, you're not exactly sure when that moment of everything gelling together is going to happen. And I really had to learn to breathe in more deeply, have more patience. And because I work with remarkable colleagues, I prepare for the extraordinary you know, it's just a, it's been a whole new awakening for me. And I was so grateful I found a small group in a virtual session where we talked about, you know, how do we show up in the world today? And it felt so directly relevant to what I was doing in the city. Wow, great, great advice. I tell you, there's a book right there. And for our audience that might have been frantically writing things down, we'll make sure we get those uh, summary points uh, to you as part of uh, the podcast, because I just think those are some wonderful things to think about and, and some guiding principles for all of us. So wonderful. So when you interact with other HR peers, because I know you, you still do a lot of networking and uh, you know reaching out to people and people reach out to you like myself, what do you feel is the biggest difference from you know, what your HR peers are doing in the private sector from what you're doing and experiencing? Are there some major differences that stand out? 
First, I would say that you really have to have a deep desire for public service. It's just a lot different having quarterly results and shareholder value. So there's a orientation that you need to have. And then, Diana, I, I, I believe that one of the things I've said to some people is my experience of time is fast and slow. Things come at me with relentless speed, but to get some things done can just be slower in a democracy to listen to others, to have it go to a council vote. So it's it, there's a different pacing. But for example, Diana, I look at three key strategic metrics, and I did the same in the private sector. I look at attraction, retention, and quality of leadership. So am I attracting talent? So am I providing a culture, a set of benefits, a compensation that people want to come here? Is it going to be meaningful work? Same in the private sector. Retention, after we take time to really hire the right people, are we creating conditions for them to want to stay? And then quality of leadership, I just feel so instrumental. And so what I seek with my colleagues and everyone is our the majority, if not the critical mass, to someday all of our leaders, do their employees who are a valuable source of feedback believe that they are performing on some of the key leadership practices? And then again, I look at that against a competitive norm. Because to say, hey, Diana, we're better than last year is interesting, but not relevant to me. And so making sure that we think what are the best leaders doing in the world? We are using the benchmark that's not public sector. We set our benchmark for the blessing white normative data that's world-class, the top, so the top quartile. And I share that because my work is very similar with my team, with my colleagues. It's just the context and the public service has some different orientation to it. We are very fortunate. We want to grow this on the concept of skilled volunteers Somebody that has an economic background happens to be a a colleague and friend of mine that I knew from Purdue, and he and his wife moved here. He has uh, wanted to serve on the Economic Advisory Board, which is one of the boards and commissions. And so doing that can give somebody a sense of what is the reality and what do you experience when you are in that organizational context? You know, that would be, uh, I, I think, a way to test it out. Yeah, no, that's great advice. And, and networking too, you know, getting to know people like you that are in those roles to, to learn more about the inside information and, and making sure it's a match. And, and that's one of the things I'm coaching my executives and future leaders to really think about is what is your purpose and really finding those roles or taking on roles or applying for jobs that really align with who you are. I think understanding the more you can about potential positions before you take a role is critical to make sure it's a match for you and it's a match for the company as well. That's true. And Diana, you just said something that I think can't be emphasized enough is knowing your purpose. And I had the opportunity to work on mine and that purpose can be fulfilled in many different arenas 
And the second thing you said that I, I absolutely want to underscore, and I love that you say this, is knowing who you are. Um, I know that if I had come earlier to Fort Collins, and I just said this recently, I would have discombobulated. I would have been ready for this. Um, so that sense of self-insight and your purpose, those are sweet, wondrous things for anyone to know and to take time with a coach like you to uncover that and unpack it. Yeah. And the other thing that as I'm talking to you that is just resonating in my head is, you know, as we get to a certain age, and we start to think about what do we want to do the rest of our life? And, you know, this concept of moving from being successful to doing things that are significant, or most recently, I'm reading this book called um, The Second Mountain, you know, what is the second mountain you want to go after? And so many people our age are talking about, you know, when I retire, I'm going to volunteer, I'm going to do these things. But the reality is some people can't retire, and they want to uh, feel like they're contributing at a higher level or connecting, whether it's more spiritually and giving back to the world or, or whatever. And I think about what you're doing, and whether it's volunteering before you can retire or doing something that is more service-oriented is, is there a way to, to kind of live out and focus on things that are more significant than just, you know, bottom line successes and more things? I don't know. That's what's resonating in my head. And it could be based on where I am in my life, too. Well, I love that you say that. And Diana, many times when I'm asked to tell a story, I start in a really weird place about my life and I say, well, let me tell you what I want asked of me at the end. And everybody's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I, I lost my mother when I was in graduate school and I was young. And at that time, it was unexpected. I was teaching a class called Personal Growth and Development during my master's program at Purdue. And four weeks after she passed away, one of our assignments was to write a eulogy and talk about bringing that home. And of course, with first year students that were mostly 18 to ask them to think about the moment that they die and what do they want said about them? I mean, that was a just complete shock. But the fact that I just experienced the loss of my mother who died at the age of 61 and that I was facilitating a dialogue for these young emerging leaders to look at what do you want said at the end? shaped me immeasurably. And so I came up with questions. Do I want to live in love or live in fear? And one that came to me later, in fact, it came to me not until my 40s, is I want someone to ask me, was I Teresa? That's not an original question of mine, but it's something you just said to be know who you are. So I want to know at the end, whenever that's going to be, was I who I was meant to be in the world? And I hope my answer to that can always be yes. Mm, I love that. Wow, so insightful. And I think I see as I'm interacting with younger leaders, and maybe they are, you know, more grounded and smarter than we were at that age. But I do see them wanting to focus on what's important. And so I love that, you know, you were doing that exercise. And even for our audience today that's listening is, what who do you want to be and will you be that person and 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 today's generation the younger generation the other thing that gives me great hope for the world is they're willing to make some changes you know maybe a little bit more flexible and take some more risks than older generations and and so i love this and i know people will be inspired by what you said so 
thank you for sharing. Well, you're very kind. And I always say, oh, my God, I'm not even that, like, wise at the age that I am. I mean, their orientation and what they see, I, I'm as inspired as you. And I just was not that conscious in the same way that I think they are. So it is just wonderful. Yeah, I agree. So talking about inspiration, who's had the greatest impact on your professional life? And why would you not be where you are today without that person's influence? I just want to tell a journey and just point to some people. And I will try to say this quickly, because it hasn't been just one, but there have been key people at really special milestones in my life. When I went to Purdue University in 1974, that was a really big uh, opportunity for me, and no one in my family had been there to help me get oriented. But there is a woman who is still one of my closest friends, Betty Nelson. She met me my second year at Purdue, and she eventually became the dean of students there. She saw something in me that I didn't see in myself And anytime we can have somebody do that for us, I still get emotional telling this because my gratitude is so large. And I tell everybody, you need a Betty, and I hope I can be Betty to others. (laughs) But what I learned from her that just helped me was I watched how she and other women and then other men were together. And I learned from them, we lift each other up and no one gains power by taking another's. That was like, so powerful to learn at the age of 19. When I was hired by HP after my master's, here I was with my master's in counseling, and I wasn't the kind of person HP hired. And back then, they had a lot more latitude. And they, too, just like you said at the city, they took a risk on me. They did. And my first manager in 1981, Brad Anderson, created the conditions for me to be who I was. And then my first line manager at, H- at HP was Bill Sullivan, who eventually became the CEO of Agilent. And that's when he and another colleague, Kirk Brockett, asked me to come home because Agilent was part of HP and it, he was at the part that split to work with him again. And he sharpened my saw in ways that I can't even describe. All along my life, I feel like I've stood on the shoulders of others and have so many friends and mentors, and they bring it to modern day. You know, I work with colleagues that are up for something bigger than themselves. My city manager, Darren Atterbury, and then the woman that took a risk on me here, Kelly DiMartino. I'm grateful, uh, and I try to be a sliver of what they've been to me to others as a way to pay it forward. Well, you're definitely doing that. And I loved the points that you shared. And we've been talking about helping and lifting up others and networking uh, in several other sessions. And, And you talked about sharpening the saw. And I think those people that continue to learn, I think that's one of the key success factors why they continue to be successful is they're constantly learning. And you are a role model for that. But I love it. I love one. Yeah, well, I love one thing that you said that we don't always hear that much, especially from women, because we are trying to, you know, do what's right, move ahead. Your comment about no one gains power by taking power and sharing credit and learning from others. And that little nugget could take people far. I can't deny that there's times 
where I want the world to be static instead of dynamic. You know, I want to be seen in a certain way. So it's not like any of those triggers don't still come for me. But over time, you know, being in practice by breathing in and asking, do I want to attach to that? Because sometimes the attachment can be to a fake sense of power and making choices to respond to the world instead of react. As I've learned these things that have shaped me, there's been a steady stream of deep development as you're pointing to and you uh, reinforce so much that you say and write about knowing yourself. So that's a little bit that I would add, my friend. Great. Any final piece of advice that you might have for our talent champions? When I'm asked, what is my greatest lesson? And I think, Diana, you may say this because of what you have been saying, is Francis LaSalle once said, be who you are and be that perfectly well. And the be who you are relates to when I said, am I who I was born to be in this lifetime? Am I being fully and wholly and healthily me? And am I giving what's mine to give? I I know that there's a definition of perfect, which I think has become a suppressive, you know, word for people. But in its original origin, I think in Hebrew was meant to come round again, to integrate. So be who you are and be that perfectly well. I think all of us as humans are on the journey to remember and rediscover, because we often forget when we're young, who we are, and then to be the best version of yourself, which is part of that integration and that perfectly well. And Diana, just because I say this doesn't mean, hey, Diana, I'm there. I hope everybody else gets there. It is daily, and I'm benefited by a great therapist. I have wonderful friends. I have people, you know, like you that's a colleague and writes and helps me think. And so that would be my final piece of advice. I love that. And the accountability be to be who you were meant to be. I love the way that you said that. Because I think, you know, more and more people are thinking about their purpose, but it's almost like this daily reflection of once you get that clear picture of who you were meant to be, and is it the best version is checking yourself against it. So I love that accountability. And you are, you've just been wonderful. You're so humble. You're so generous with your knowledge. You know, I know our audience will benefit from what you've shared. So how could our audience continue to learn from you and get in touch with you? Well, I want them to know that I would learn from them because it's a community and it always happens that way. But I'm on LinkedIn, you know, under my name, T-E-R-E-S-A-R-O-C-H-E. My Twitter is Teresa Roach, all lowercase. And my email is troach at fcgov.com. And fc is fortcollinsgov.com. And I'd be happy to have anyone reach out to share thoughts, what resonated for them, or certainly to ask questions. So thank you for asking that. Oh, thank you so much. This has just been a delightful conversation. Always insightful as well. Well, thank you. Here's a quick recap of today's episode. Teresa's interest in the public sector grew out of her lifelong emphasis on volunteering, 
While giving back is so important, volunteering can also give us opportunities to see how our skills translate into a different field and whether we want to explore a new area professionally. When you're trying to attract and retain talent in part-time seasonal or hourly roles, it's important to consider what Teresa calls the triple helix of healthcare, childcare, and housing. While we're all grappling with these issues in our own lives, they tend to be especially critical for people who aren't working full-time. A strong alignment between the culture and the mission, vision, and values is critical to achieving top results in any organization. Strategic planning that starts from the top and flows down into HR has enabled Teresa's team to stay focused on what matters most to the city. A customer-focused orientation transfers well from the private sector into public. Although their customers are different, listening to their needs is no less critical. Teresa also mentioned that change happens quickly, but it also can be slow to enact in a democratic process. Combining humility and confidence can be a powerful way to lead. Humility allows you to believe that others have something to offer, while confidence helps you remember that you have something to offer as well. When things get messy, breathe deeply and have patience. Know your purpose and recognize that it can be fulfilled in many different arenas. Part of knowing your purpose is knowing who you are, and working with a coach can be a powerful way to uncover both of these insights. We've been talking a lot about personal development on the podcast lately. On our next episode, we're zooming out to look at teams. What goes into building and running a high-performing team? And how do we get people to bring their best selves to work? Subscribe to our email list at talent-champions.com to make sure that you don't miss the next episode. Thanks for listening to Talent Champions with Diana Thomas. Be sure to check out the full Franklin Covey Podcast Network by searching Franklin Covey on your favorite podcast provider.